Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. Good to be together with you. Welcome to Next Community Church. And uh, we want to help everybody take their next steps with God, wherever you are at with God. We're so glad you're here, especially if you're a guest or a visitor. If this is your first time with us, we welcome you and say good morning to you. My name's Joe, one of the pastors here. And uh, we're, we're, we're honored that you're here. And we pray that you'd feel welcomed here, that more than anything, you'd know how much God loves you. I want to say good morning to those of you joining us at, at home as well. We're going to jump right in this morning because we have a lot, a lot, a lot to cover here at the next Theological Seminary. Uh, we're in class today. I told my wife I'm wearing my professor jacket today because that's, that's what we're going to do today. It's going to feel like a seminary class a little bit. If this is your first time to next, it doesn't normally quite go like this. We're in a series where we're really um, trying to understand the book that everything we do is based on. And, and so we're, we're getting a little bit kind of down into the weeds of understanding the grand story of the book. And, and today we begin the part of the series where we begin to really analyze some key theological doctrines that have to do with the forming of this book. So before we do that, though, I'm going to welcome Angela Denny to come on up. And like we've done every week, we're going to have somebody share, Angela share, what the Bible has meant to her and how it's impacted her life. Thank you, Joe. Good morning. Um, just for a little background, so I grew up Catholic, like maybe some of you, and um, to me that was filled with duty and tradition and rituals and that kind of thing, and I couldn't tell you what the priest said in a million homilies, but I always knew that the Lord was there, and I felt very drawn to the church at that point, um, or to God, I should say, and as a young kid, he was pulling on my heart. So fast forward, oh, one story I got to tell about, um, on our coffee table, we had the big old Catholic white Bible, and that thing never got touched or, or really moved, and my mom said, we couldn't read it, we'd never understand it, so we didn't, but she dusted it every week, but, <laughs> so fast forward, many years later, in my mid-40s, I came to know Jesus, and, um, and then to 2021, as probably so many of you, uh, wasn't a great year spiritually for me. I was feeling very apathetic. Um, I wasn't in my Bible. I wasn't in prayer consistently. I was reading devotionals and other people's opinions of, of the word. Um, so I knew I needed to get back to that spiritual baseline. And I was so excited when Joe talked about this corporate fasting and prayer and the 50-day challenge. And I just thought, what a great way to jumpstart a new year. Um, because we know what happens out there. That's, that's a swirl of madness out there that with politics and pandemic and everything else. Um, so it was really great to be back in the Word. Um, so talking about a Bible, I had an old Bible since I was in my early 40s, and that Bible traveled through all trials and joys and heartbreak and everything in my life um, as a young mom. And um, I still have that Bible sitting here today, and, but as Joe suggested, I thought, well, it's time to get a study Bible and really start digging into the Word, because I would borrow my husband's often, and what a difference that has made, um, just studying the Bible instead of just trying to read through it. Um, and in this new Bible, I, I take along my old Bible, which is still my good friend, and compare notes, because all around the edges of it, highlighted all, colors and all, are is just everything that I went through in life. And so now this blank Bible is going to be my new friend, but uh, we're getting there. Um, so um, there's just so much constant tension pulling us away from Bible reading. It does for me. 
So I try to start my morning with that and get into the word as early as I can. And there's just so many things pulling us away. But as John 1, 1 tells us, in the beginning was the word and the word was God, with God and the word was God. That's amazing. This is, this is God speaking to us. And it's just awesome to know how to live. I mean, he guides our footsteps. He tells us who we are and how we need to live. And I can't do it without that Bible. And I just thank him so much. And um, I just pray that for all of us, that as we move forward in these next steps, that we all get there with him. Thank you very much. Thank you. I, I like what you did there, too, with these next steps. I see what you did there. I, that wasn't lost on me. I like that. Um, what, a, what, a, what an awesome way to start your day every day with, in God's Word. Let it influence you and shape you. And um, thir- 13 years ago, I was given a book. Um, it was a, it's a special book to me. It's one that I'll keep for the rest of my life. It was a book from um, ones that I love dearly. Um, it was, it was a, a Father's Day book that was given to me in 2009, and it's filled with pictures of, of my wife and my kids and um, with little sayings there and little captions and uh, reminders of their love for me and our experiences together and their thoughts and ideas, and um, it, it's, it's, it's a special book, it's a special book that I keep downstairs in my office, and um, God gave us a special book as well. Um, you know, God wrote a book. It's the number one bestseller of all time. And it, it, it captures his feelings towards you and about his thoughts and his ideas and, 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 and how to live life. It, it is the single greatest resource that you and I could ever, ever possess, the word of God. And, and um, sadly, our, our world is kind of facing a Bible crisis right now. Uh, the American Bible Society recently released, uh, it was a very robust report that they did um, from a large research project on the state of the Bible in the United States. Um, surveyed over 3,300 3, individuals. They presented their findings in a 200-page ebook. Okay, And uh, let me just give you a couple highlights here of what they found. Very troubling, very concerning. Um, According to the research, 41% of Americans, is almost half, believe or strongly believe the Bible as compared to other religion books is merely a different expression of the same truth. So in other words, there's really not much difference from this book to other religious books. Same expression, just different writer. 41% 41% of Americans today. Um, you know, everybody talks too about how this, this, you know, every generation complains about the generation before it, right? And so um, for me, that's, that's, that's the millennials, that, that millennial generation. It takes a lot of heat, right? The millennial generation. And that's anyone born between 81 and 96. Uh, you guys have been picked on for a, 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 a long time about the millennials and how they're flocking away from the church. Um, do you know what the generation is called after the millennials? It's Generation Z, right? And that's anyone born um, 1997 and beyond. And uh, so that's their oldest would be 25. So anyone 25 and down. This next generation that will be leading our nation in the next 20 years, right? They're, they will be the one. And, and now, now and for the next 20 years, according to this research, 
9% of Gen Z are engaged with the Bible in any way. 9%. In other words, 91% of Gen Z, 25-year-olds and down, have zero engagement with the Bible in any way. And, and so th- this is why we're doing this series. This is why um, God put it on our hearts to, to make sure we understand what we have in the Bible and to try and to eliminate the obstacles and the barriers that are out there as to, well, this is just a book or it's been changed so many times or I don't understand it or it doesn't make sense or it, it, it's just like other religions have their religious book and Christianity has its religious book. We want to try and remove those basically wrong ideas about God and his word. And that's why we've spent the last six weeks doing this series. And so today we transition, and, um, and I, I pray you bought your books because we're going we're gonna to be diving in here, class. We really are. And again, if you're new, if you're a guest here, uh, it's normally not this, um, I don't know what else to, to put it, like just heady or information-driven um, but, but I want you to know the truth about God's word because everything else we're going to say here at Next Community Church is based upon this book. So we, we better have confidence that it is God's book, that God did write a book, and, and, and it's everything that we could know is here in this book. So turn to page 25, if you would, and, and we're going to begin. And I want, you to, I want you to understand the process of how we came to have this thing called the Bible. And that's what we're going to talk about today and tomorrow, uh, or today and tomorrow, today and next Sunday. So if you could throw up that, that next slide for me, it should be the one, yeah, that's the one. So, so the process of, of you and I getting the Bible and reading the Bible and understanding the Bible, letting it shape us, right, is a five-step process. And that's what we're going to talk about here today. We're going to cover today, we're going to cover inspiration and canonization, okay? We're going to define those two things and talk about those two things. Basically, inspiration, God gave us a book. Canonization, how we know we got the right books. How do we know we're not missing books? And is this really all that there is of, of the 66 books of the Bible? And then next week, we're going to talk about transmission, I mean, this thing's been put together over the last 3,000 years. How, how do we know it hasn't been changed, right? Like kind of you know, whisper down the lane. We're going to talk about transmission. And then that weird word, hermeneutics. How do you approach this book and how you're supposed to read it? And then the last thing is, is understanding how to study the book, which is what Angela just kind of said, is, is really letting God's word in your heart so that it shapes you. And how do you do it? So we're going to talk about that next week. But today... Um, class, we're going to talk about inspiration. So in your notes, and I encourage you to write these things down, the Bible is God's very words to us. That's the first thing that we're going to talk about this morning, how the Bible is God's very words to us. And, and, and that is what is meant by the doctrine of inspiration, okay? And so um, what we're going to do, you don't have to necessarily write this down, um, but what, what we're going to do what happened? Uh, uh, uh. Why? <laughs> what happened? Let's try this one. <laughs> Joe Santiso. 
Help me. The professor needs help. Why is it doing that? Why is it erasing itself? It's so weird. Joe, it's not working. Like I'm writing, and it's going away. Is it? I don't think so. The pen's working. Why is it doing that? Somebody was messing with my board. Talk and Joe, that's what we're going to do. We're going to turn it off and on again. That's how we fix things here. So here's what we're. Come on, y'all do it at home too, right? Turn it off, turn it back on, and it fixes it most of the time. Here's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to define inspiration, and then we're going to defend inspiration, okay? And, and so we're going to define it, and then we're going to defend it. And in the defense of inspiration, we're going to call four witnesses to the stand to testify that the Bible truly is written by God, okay? So let's start off by defining it, all right? In your, in your notes here, um, let me give you a definition, and then we're going to unpack this definition. It's full of, of clauses and phrases. We're going to unpack it, so don't get overwhelmed by the definition. But here's, a, here's a, the biblical definition of what inspiration is. God's superintendence of the human authors of Scripture... So that using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded, without error, his revelation to man in the words of the original autographs. It's quite a mouthful, right? And we're going to unpack the three main words that you just wrote down, okay? When we talk about inspiration. The Bible is, because inspiration, when it comes to scripture, doesn't mean, oh yeah, well a bunch of guys, the apostle Paul got inspired, and he went outside, and he looked up at the sky, and he saw the birds and the trees, and then he got inspired, and he, he wrote the word. No, no, that's not what we mean by inspiration, okay? It's, that's a different definition of inspiration. Biblical inspiration is God's think school superintendents, okay? of the human authors of Scripture so that using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error his revelation to man in the original autographs. We include the original autographs because um, it is when man first wrote down the original words of God, um, and, and, and this is not a problem, but we don't have any of the original autographs. There's no ancient documents that we have the originals of. And we'll get to this when we get to the transmission um, section next week, how the Bible has closeness of age from the copy we do have to the timing of the original writing and numbers, manuscript evidence on its side that blows any other ancient writings just out of the water in comparison's sake, okay? So let's, let's, see, if we, let's see if that worked. <laughs> All right, so we're going to define it, and we're going to defend it. You can write this in your notes to the left there if you want, because underneath defense, underneath defending inspiration, that should have been at the top, inspiration at the top, okay? Underneath that, we're going to call four witnesses to the stand, okay? And, and one of them is an internal witness, 
meaning the Bible itself. And then we're going to call um, we're going to call three external witnesses, and and I'm, and we'll get to that when we get there. I just want you to, I want you to frame up where we're going today when it comes to understanding inspiration. Okay, so let's talk about each one of these three words. In your notes, let's talk about superintendents. Okay, again, think of a school, uh, school board superintendent who kind of just oversees everything to do, and there's never been more pressure and heat on school board superintendents than today, right? So, so think of God superintending this whole process, right? And in, in, in your notes, this allows for the spectrum of relationships that God had with the writers and the variety of materials and his involvement in the process, okay? So it's not like God's took a pen from heaven and came down and God literally wrote it, right? He, he superintended over the process of over 40 different authors writing the Bible, okay? And, and, and sometimes his superintendence was very involved. Like Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, right? And so there were things that happened in Genesis that nobody was there to record and so God, the main belief is that God just told Moses, very involved, here's, here's what happened in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3, right? When, when nobody's there to record that, right? Other times, like we learned with the Gospel of Luke last week, Luke was a doctor and was a world-class historian. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, he's writing to his friend Theophilus, and he says, I carefully investigated. So Luke did lots of human research on that, but yet God still was involved in superintending over that process. So that's the first thing that we need to understand. Here's the second thing, is that he composed, okay, mankind composed, man wrote God's words, shows that the writers were not passive stenographers to whom God just dictated the material, right? It wasn't like they went into some kind of comatose trance and God took over their hand and, and made them write words like that, like all they were doing is just kind of the, the implementation of writing. That what, that's not what we mean by inspiration. So we see the author's different vocabulary come out and their writing style come out. So God's superintendence of this doesn't kind of make them just kind of go zombie-like and just, just kind of writing whatever it is that God is just kind of downloading into their hard drive, right? That's not, that's not what we mean by that. Because you see Paul, and, and Paul has a certain writing style. And you can identify that. When you read Paul's letters, you're like, there's a, there's a, a consistency here in the way Paul writes. So God was over that, different than how John writes wrote the Gospel of John, and, and John wrote Revelation, John wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, right? So you see this um, superintendence allows for the human authors to be a part of it. At the same time, God's over it. And then the third thing that we want to talk about in this definition is, is God superintended over, so the authors wrote down the words, but God's involvement now is causing the words to be without error, the biblical definition for that is inerrant, okay? That's a, that's a good theological word to write down. In, one N, two R's. Inerrant. It means without error. And this is why we base everything that we believe and we're going to practice 
on the word of God because it's true. It's without error. And, and so in your notes, it expresses the Bible's own claim to be truth and thus free from error. This is inextricably tied to the character of God himself. Since God is omniscient, all-knowing. And so um, God's word, therefore, is true. Because God was the superintendent over it. And so um, some of the verses that I just, we gave you in your notes, I'll just put on the screen real quick so you can see, um, that is tied to the character of God, which is why we believe that we can trust the Bible. Because God doesn't make mistakes. God's not learning or growing or developing or having more in, oh, I didn't know, oh, I'm, I, I'm, I just, God's not learning, right? And so when, when he writes and gave us his word, it's without error. Second Samuel 7 says, and now, O Lord God, you are God, your words are true. John 17, Jesus was praying, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Titus 1.2 says, God, who never lies. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God breathed. We're going to unpack that verse in a little bit. And so we come to this book and say it's true. And it's all true. And it's not changing. We live in a culture where truth is flexible. Where truth is adapting and changing. And phrases in the last years have come up like, well, you just live your truth. And you live your truth. As if, as if there's different truths, as if, as if um, I could be wearing a green jacket or I'm wearing a blue jacket. Well, you just live your truth. And, then, and what it is to you, it is to you. It's like, no, no, there is, there is a truth. There is a standard. And, and that's, that's what God has given us here in his word. It's without error. And so um, in your notes, when we talk about inspiration and that God was involved very much through the whole process, not just in the writing of Scripture, but as you're going to see in the transmission of Scripture, in us having the canon of Scripture. God was involved over the whole process. It's important, though, when it comes to inspiration, and I make this distinction in your notes. It's important to make the distinction, recognizing that it's not the authors, nor the process that is inspired, but the very words themselves. So when we speak about inspiration, class, everybody with me so far? No one's falling asleep, all right? All right, everyone's with me. Nudge your neighbor, make sure they're not sleeping in class, all right? Wake up. When we talk about inspiration, it's not that the authors were inspired, right? It's not like Peter got inspired one day, and I'm going to write a letter, and it's turned into the Bible, right? It's not what we mean when we talk about inspiration. We're not talking about the process. We're talking about the very words of Scripture. The very words. How, how, how much detail? Down to the littlest letter of the Bible. That's what Jesus said. Look at Matthew 5, 18. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter... Not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. This is Jesus speaking, looking back at the Old Testament. Not the least little part will disappear until everything is accomplished. You know what the word is? The, the Greek word for not the smallest letter? You know what the Greek word is? Somebody said it. Iota. 
It's the word iota, as if we could say, I, I don't give one iota about that. What's that means? It's the smallest thing. It's like we could care less. A Greek iota looks like this. It's an iota, right? It's the smallest letter there is. And so this is what Jesus is saying. Down to the very letters, they're all going to come to pass. Words have meaning. Letters have meaning. And Jesus said, according to Jesus, they're all inspired. They're all going to come to pass. And so when we talk about inspiration, not the authors, not the process, what's inspired? The very words of God. Okay? So um, now that's the definition of inspiration. Now, now let's, we got to defend this thing, right? All right, prove it. You're, you're, seriously, you're claiming that this book God wrote, that this is God's, literally God's words to us? So we've got to defend it now, okay? We've got to defend our claim that God wrote a book and he gave it to us. And so we're going to call four witnesses to the stand to, to make this defense, okay? The first witness we're going to call is an, in, an internal witness. We're going to call the Bible itself to the stand, which critics like to say, you, you can't do that. That's circular reasoning. You can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. To which I would say, well, if in the court of law, the person has a right to take the stand to give a defense on their own account. Is that not true? And so the Bible has a right to, to defend itself for what it's claiming. Okay, so in your notes on page 27, let's talk about the internal witness of the Bible. It's only proper that the Bible should be permitted to witness about itself. Some have argued this is circular reasoning. We would say no. The Bible's allowed to, to make its defense about it. What does the Bible say? The most clearest scripture de defending the claim of inspiration is 2 Timothy 3. 16 and 17, it says this, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay? Um, without getting into all the other words of training, correcting, we're not concerned about what the scripture is going to do. We're concerned about the first sentence. All scripture is God-breathed. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration, guidance of God, made up a Greek word. Doesn't exist. It's not found in any other part of the New Testament. The Greek word is theonoustos. Theonoustos. God, theo, where we get theology from. Noustos, breath. Literally means the, all scripture is literally the breath of God. All scripture is God-breathed. So the scriptures itself claim that all of the scriptures, notice the first word, A-L-L, all. I looked it up in the Greek. You know what that means? That means all. That means all of it. All of the scripture is God-breathed, okay? Here's the second clearest passage that helps us understand, too, the defense of the Bible's claim to be inspiration. That's found in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, it says this, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. So in other words, it's not just like one day uh, the, 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 the gospel writer Mark just like, oh, I'm just going to write down what I think about Jesus. Right? It's not coming about by their own desire, their own interpretation. It says prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. 
but rather men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As they were carried along. This is a very interesting Greek verb, this carried along. I'll just tell you this for the sake of time. It's in the passive voice. In other words, meaning that the subject is not doing the verb, it's being done to them. It's the Holy Spirit that is carrying them along as they're writing scripture, right? To give you another idea of of this word, the same Greek verb is used in another passage. Go ahead and throw up that other passage if you would. Here's the same word in a different context. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the nor'easter swept down from the island. Go ahead. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. Same verb that is used to talk about the wind that came into the sail of the ship and carried it along, right? And so you see this divine human partnership of of us, the, the, the authors with the pen being the sail and the Holy Spirit coming along like the wind and carrying along. This is how inspiration has happened. This is how God wrote a book. God could have had a giant hand appear from the sky and come down on tablets and, and write this way. He could have done and written the whole Bible that way, but he didn't. Rather, like many things that God does, he chose to involve his creation. Even today, Could God not go snap his fingers and cause the whole world to have a change of heart, give the whole world a dream of Jesus rising again from the grave? Could God not save the world not using you and I? Of course he could. In his sovereignty and grace and wisdom, he chooses to partner with broken human vessels to accomplish his will. That's why he's left us here on the earth right now to accomplish his will. And so same thing when it comes to the writing of scripture, okay? So the scriptures itself testify on its own behalf, God wrote this book, all right? That's the internal witness. Now we're gonna, we're gonna turn to an external witness. We're gonna call three more witnesses to the stand, okay? One, two, three. We're gonna call three witnesses to the stand that are gonna collaborate and corroborate with the internal witness to say this is true, the first is what we're going to call prophecy. The second is what we're going to call, I have archaeology or history next. History. And the next one is archaeology. And these are, again, these are written in your book on page 30, but I just want you to see the flow of where we're going here so you can understand this, okay? Let's, let's talk real quick. We've got to go fast. Let's talk about the external witness of prophecy, I gave you in your notes here, I'm not going to be able to read all of it, but um, I told you last week that there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament dating all the way back to the book of Isaiah, actually dating back to Genesis um, about the Messiah. There's prophecies in the Bible about the Messiah. There's prophecies in the Bible about other nations, right? And so there's over 300 prophecies in the scriptures about Jesus that he fulfilled, Do you know what the odds are of one person fulfilling 300 predictions? What if five years ago I told you when we drafted Ben Simmons that five years from now 
the point guard would not know how to shoot a ball, and so we're going to trade him, and we're going to get Ben Harden. And then today came. You'd look at me and say, you'd be, you'd be pretty impressed, wouldn't you? You'd be like, what, how did you do that? What did you know? Right? We just used our best draft pick. and tra- What? How did you know that? What if I did that 300 times, and it lasted for over 700 years? You'd say there's something, there's something maybe divine going on. There's that's there's no way that can happen, right? In the Bible, there's 300 prophecies about Jesus. A mathematician figured out what are the odds of one person not not fulfilling 300, just fulfilling eight. One person fulfilling eight predictions, where they would be born, how they would die, where they would live, things that would be done, they had no control of. And the odds of one person fulfilling eight predictions is one in 10 to the 17th power of eight prophecies, right? So just so so we can see what that looks like, okay? It's one in 10 with 17 zeros. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Comma, 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 comma. The odds of one person fulfilling eight. They then did a further study to say, what does one in 10 to the 17th power look like practically in a... In a What are the odds of that happening? And this is what they did. They calculated. I read that this was done at MIT. That they um, would take the state of Texas, okay, which you could fit six Pennsylvanians into Texas to understand the size of Texas. Texas is a huge state. If you take the state of Texas and you fill Texas two feet deep with silver dollars, Before you filled the state of Texas, which six Pennsylvanias will fit in, you took one of those silver dollars and you painted one side of it red. And then you put it in there somewhere and you mixed them all up. And then you took a person and you blindfolded him and you put him in a helicopter and he flew over Texas, six Pennsylvanias in it. And he yells out, stop! And you drop down the helicopter and he comes and he reaches down to pull out the one red silver dollar. That is the odds of 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That is only if Jesus fulfilled only eight prophecies. He didn't fulfill eight. He fulfilled 300. It's incalculable. They tried to to do it. What if he fulfilled 48 prophecies, okay? They couldn't calculate 300. What if they did 48, if one guy did 48? It is 1 in 10 to the 157th power. I I would write it out. We don't have enough time, right? (laughs) And that's if somebody just fulfilled 48. Jesus didn't fulfill eight. He didn't fulfill 48. He fulfilled 300. To which tells you there's something divine about this book. It seems like there's a divine superintendent that is in control of history and where people are being born, and what people hung on the cross next to Jesus are going to do. Like, it seems like there's no, there's just, 
Statistically, no way it could be coincidental, right? So we have the witness of prophecy. You can turn in your book. You can see that I gave you some prophecies, not only about the Messiah, but prophecies about nations, prophecies um, about other cities in your book there on page 32. Let's talk about the second witness we're going to call to the stand. I'm going to call the witness of history to the stand now. Okay, we, Prophecy gets off the stand. Now we bring history to the stand. On page 33, let me just read this to you. There are indeed many kinds of historical writings in the Bible. We find straight historical narrative, but also things like lists of kings, high priests, chronicles, genealogies. Scripture's great accuracy in historical details is yet another witness to its divine nature. Again, all of this is to prove God wrote a book, right? The gospel writer Luke was a world-class historian. He correctly identifies by name, title, job, and time such historical individuals are. And I gave you some of the Roman leaders at the time, some of the uh, Egyptian leaders even at the time, and and they're in, in Acts. You can look them up. And you go back and you look into history books. And those are the people that are leading during that time. So you have the the witness of history. Now let's call our third witness to the stand. Turn the page. That is the witness of archaeology. Of when they start discovering stuff over there. I've been blessed to be able to go to Israel twice. If you can ever go, save up. Put yourself an Israel jar off to the side. Start saving up. It, It ain't cheap, but I promise you it is worth it to go and walk where Jesus and the Bible happened. And I've been there twice. And there's a saying that they have over there, the tour guides will all say when you're walking around, that in Israel, if you stub your toe, you call an archaeologist because you might have just unearthed a piece of history, right? And so for the sake of time, I'm not going to, I gave you six different examples of things, archaeological finds that happened that prove the things that the Bible were written about. E- even some of the things that were written in the Bible that they didn't even, there, there's, no, there's no mention of this in history. And then sometime later, they discover something that proves, oh, what the Bible said was actually true. And so again, you put all of this on paper together, right? All of this to uh, the doctrine of inspiration, of, of what it is that God superintended, and then we call the Bible itself to defend, and now we call these three external witnesses, and we say, with confidence, God wrote a book, and he gave it to us. And it's the most amazing book there is in the world. Everything you need to know about life, and the afterlife, and relationships, and how truth it works, it's all written here in this book. And so here's what we're going to have to do. And I knew this was going to happen. I knew there was no way I was doing all of this in one sermon. And so, um, and some of you have been, been kind and said, this has been very helpful. Just let's keep going, keep going. And so, we, we can't do that because we have a very important series that has to happen in March that ties in with what God is doing in us trying to make this our permanent home and buy this building that butts right up against Easter coming up. And so when we start working backwards, We don't have time. Um, And so here's what I'm going to do. I am going to do part two of this sermon, not next week, because then we'll we'll never get through next week. Next week, I got more stuff to get through than this week. And so it's just not going to happen. So what I'm going to do, because I want you to understand about canonicity. Canonicity is how do we know we got the right books? 
What about the apocryphal books, our Catholic friends that have extra books in there? And, and what about Dan Brown and his whole thing that came out, you know, uh, the Da Vinci Code and, and other gospels, the Gospel of Thomas and all these things? How do we know we got the right ones? And I want you to understand with confidence that the 66 books we have are the ones that God gave to us. And the other ones are ones that were never accepted as divine because other people were writing stuff. It wasn't from God. And what they did is they figured out which ones are divine, and I'll talk with you about that, and the other ones they took and they threw it in the trash can. And they said, it's not God's words. It's not evil, it's not bad, it's just not God's words. Now what's happening is there's people that are wanting to find the trash can and be like, oh, look, we found another book, a missing book of the Bible. There's no missing books of the Bible, right? All you're doing is finding the trash can that the Hebrews or the first century church knew was not God's words. And so I'm going to do part two of this on our Facebook page, okay? And I'll do it either tomorrow or Tuesday. And it'll probably be another 15 minutes of teaching on this thing of canonicity. And I'll give you all the fill-ins so you can have everything all filled in for canonicity. And next week we're going to come back and we'll talk about transmission, okay? So let me have the worship team come. And, and, and I apologize for trying to get too much stuff in. In, in little time. Um, I didn't want to s- quickly brush over inspiration. I already feel like I'm brushing over it quickly as it is. We could spend hours talking about this doctrine. It's so important. This is not like any other book. You understand that? When you read this book, the author shows up. God shows up and meets with you and wants to speak to you, which is why, church, we felt even this led to do this whole series because where we're at in the world and where I believe we're going as a church, we need to be men and women of the book. We need to hide God's word in our heart. We need to let it shape us. We need to trust that it's God speaking to us. And if you don't know how to spend time in this book and you don't spend time in this book, you are going to be just like a jellyfish being blown around by the winds and the current and the waves of the culture. And your truth will move this way and then you'll move this way and you won't understand how to live, and you won't know how to believe. And what ends up happening is we pass that stuff on then to our kids in the next generation. That's why, that's why today we have 9% of 25-year-olds and younger, 9% that have any engagement with this book, 9%. It's time for us to be the church and to be men and women who love this book and read this book, and most importantly, love the God of this book. And so um, if you're not on our Facebook page, go to Next Community Church on Facebook, like us, and, um, and I'll, we'll post it either tomorrow or Tuesday. Uh, I'll try to do it tomorrow. I'll try to do it tomorrow, okay? So thanks for being gracious. Um, I hope I didn't put you to sleep with all this stuff. It's, it's very heady. I know it's not a lot here. It's right here, but man, we've got to know this. So let's pray. God, we just come and I thank you that you gave us your book. You didn't leave us in the dark. You told us exactly who you are, what you've done, how to live, how you see us, how things are going to go in the end, how things all began. I thank you that you told us everything that we need to know. And so, God, I pray that we would be a church that anchors itself to the word of God. Thank you for giving us the book. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's close in a